Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Night Ocean by H. P. Lovecraft and R. H. Barlow. One. I went to Wellston Beach not only for the pleasures of sun and ocean, but to rest a weary mind since I knew no person in the little town which thrives on summer vacationists and presents only blank windows during most of the year, there seemed no likelihood that I might be disturbed. This pleased me, for I did not wish to see anything but the expanse of pounding surf and the beach lying before my temporary home. My long work of the summer was completed when I left the city, and the large mural design produced by it had been entered in the contest. It had taken me the bulk of the year to finish the painting, and when the last brush was cleaned I was no longer reluctant to yield to the claims of health, and find rest and seclusion for a time. Indeed, when I had been a week on the beach, I recalled only now and then the work whose success had so recently seemed all-important. There was no longer the old concern with a hundred complexities of colour and ornament— no longer the fear and mistrust of my ability to render a mental image actual and turn, by my own skill alone, the dim-conceived idea into the careful draught of a design. And yet that which later befell me by the lonely shore may have grown solely from the mental constitution behind such concern and fear and mistrust. For I have always been a seeker, a dreamer, and a ponderer on seeking and dreaming— and who can say that such a nature does not open latent eyes sensitive to unsuspected worlds and orders of being? Now that I am trying to tell what I saw, I am conscious of a thousand maddening limitations. Things seen by the inward sight, like those flashing visions which come as we drift into the blankness of sleep, are more vivid and meaningful to us in that form than when we have sought to weld them with reality. Set a pen to a dream— and the colour drains from it. The ink with which we write seems diluted with something holding too much of reality, and we find that after all we cannot delineate the incredible memory. It is as if our inward selves, released from the bonds of daytime and objectivity, revelled imprisoned emotions which are hastily stifled when we would translate them. In dreams and visions lie the greatest creations of man, for on them rests no yoke of lie nor hue forgotten scenes, and lands more obscure than the golden world of childhood, spring into the sleeping mind to reign, until awakening puts them to rout. Amid these may be attained something of the glory and contentment for which we yearn. Some adumbration of sharp beauty suspected, but not before revealed, which are to us as the grail to holy spirits of the medieval world. To shape these things on the wheel of art, to seek to bring some faded trophy from that intangible realm of shadow and gossamer, requires equal skill and memory. For although dreams are in all of us, few hands may grasp their moth-wings without tearing them. Such skill this narrative does not have. If I might, I would reveal to you the hinted events which I perceive dimly, like one who peers into an unlit realm and glimpses forms whose motion is concealed. In my mural design, which then lay with a multitude of others in the building for which they were planned, I had striven equally to catch a trace of this elusive shadow world, and had perhaps succeeded better than I shall now succeed. My stay in Elston was to await the judging of that design, and when days of unfamiliar leisure had given me perspective, I discovered that, in spite of those weaknesses which a creator always detects most clearly, I had indeed managed to retain in line and colour some fragments snatched from the endless world of imagining. The difficulties of the process, and the resulting strain on all my powers, had undermined my health, and brought me to the beach during this period of waiting. Since I wished to be wholly alone, I rented, to the delight of the incredulous owner, a small house some distance from the village of Elston, which, because of the waning season, was alive with a moribund bustle of tourists, uniformly uninteresting to me. The house, dark from the sea-wind, though it had not been painted, was not even a satellite of the village, but swung below it on the coast like a pendulum beneath a still clock, quite alone upon a hill of weed-grown sand. 
Like a solitary warm animal, it crouched facing the sea, and its inscrutable dirty windows stared upon a lonely realm of earth and sky, and enormous sea. It will not do to use too much imagining in a narrative whose facts, could they be augmented and fitted into a mosaic, would be strange enough in themselves. But I thought the little house was lonely when I saw it, and that, like myself, it was conscious of its meaningless nature before the great sea. I took the place in late August, arriving a day before I was expected, and encountering a van and two workingmen unloading the furniture provided by the owner. I did not know then how long I would stay, and when the truck that brought the goods had left, I settled my small luggage and locked the door, feeling very proprietary about having a house after months of a rented room, to go down the weedy hill and on the beach. Since it was quite square, and had but one room, the house required little exploration. Two windows in each side provided a great quantity of light, and somehow a door had been squeezed in as an afterthought, on the oceanward wall. The place had been built about ten years previously, but on account of its distance from Elston village, was difficult to rent even during the active summer season. There being no fireplace, it stood empty and alone from October until far into spring, though actually less than a mile below Elston. It seemed more remote, since a bend in the coast caused one to see only grassy dunes in the direction of the village. The first day, half gone when I was installed, I spent in the enjoyment of sun and restless water, things whose quiet majesty made the designing of murals seem distant and tiresome. But this was the natural reaction to a long concern with one set of habits and activities. I was through with my work, and my vacation was begun. This fact, while elusive for the moment, showed in everything which surrounded me that afternoon of my arrival, and in the utter change from old scenes. There was an effect of bright sun upon a shifting sea of waves, whose mysteriously impelled curves were strewn with what appeared to be rhinestones. Perhaps a water-colour might have caught the solid masses of intolerable light which lay upon the beach where the sea mingled with the sand. Although the ocean bore her own hue, it was dominated wholly and incredibly by the enormous glare. There was no other person near me, and I enjoyed the spectacle without the annoyance of any alien object upon the stage. Each of my senses was touched in a different way, but sometimes it seemed that the roar of the sea was akin to that great brightness, or as if the waves were glaring instead of the sun, each of these being so vigorous and insistent that impressions coming from them were mingled. Curiously, I saw no one bathing near my little square house during that or succeeding afternoons, although the curving shore included a wide beach even more inviting than that at the village, where the surf was dotted with random figures. I suppose that this was because of the distance, and because there had never been other houses below the town. Why this unbuilt stretch existed, I could not imagine, since many dwellings straggled along the northward coast, facing the sea with aimless eyes. I swam until the afternoon had gone, and later, having rested, walked into the little town. Darkness hid the sea from me as I entered, and I found in the dingy lights of the streets tokens of a life which was not even conscious of the great gloom-shrouded thing lying so close. There were painted women in tinsel adornments, and bored men who were no longer young, a throng of foolish marionettes perched on the lip of the ocean chasm, unseeing, unwilling to see what lay above them and about in the multitudinous grandeur of the stars, and the leagues of the night ocean. I walked along that darkened sea as I went back to the bare little house, sending the beams of my flashlight out upon the naked and impenetrable void. In the absence of the moon, this light made a solid bar athwart the walls of the uneasy tide, and I felt an indescribable emotion born of the noise of the waters, and the perception of my inconceivable smallness as I cast that tiny beam upon a realm immense in itself, yet only the black border of the earthly deep, that nighted deep upon which ships were moving alone in the darkness, where I could not see them, gave off the murmur of a distant, angry rabble. When I reached my high residence, I knew that I had passed no one during the mile's walk from the village, 
and yet there somehow lingered an impression that I had been all the while accompanied by the spirit of the lonely sea. It was, I thought, personified in a shape which was not revealed to me, but which moved quietly about beyond my range of comprehension. It was like those actors who wait behind darkened scenery, in readiness for the lines which will shortly call them before our eyes, to move and speak in the sudden revelation of the footlights. At last, I shook off this fancy, and sought my key to enter the place, whose bare walls gave a sudden feeling of security. My cottage was entirely free of the village, as if it had wandered down the coast and was unable to return, and there I heard nothing of the disturbing clamour when I returned each night after supper. I generally stayed but a short while upon the streets of Elston, though sometimes I went into the place for the sake of the walk it provided. There were all the multitude of curio shops and falsely regal theatre fronts that clutter vacation towns, but I never went into these, and the place seemed useful only for its restaurants. It was astonishing the number of useless things people found to do. There was a succession of sun-filled days at first. I rose early, and beheld the grey sky agleam with promise of sunrise, a prophecy fulfilled as I stood witness. Those dawns were cold, and their colours faint in comparison to that uniform radiance of day, which gives to every hour the quality of white noon. That great light, so apparent the first day, made each succeeding day a yellow page in the book of time. I noticed that many of the beach people were displeased by the inordinate sun, whereas I sought it. After grey months of toil, the lethargy induced by a physical existence in a region governed by the simple things, the wind and light and water, had a prompt effect upon me, and since I was anxious to continue this healing process, I spent all my time outdoors in the sunlight. This induced a state at once impassive and submissive, and gave me a feeling of security against the ravenous night. As darkness is akin to death, so is light to vitality. Through the heritage of a million years ago, when men were closer to the mother sea, and when the creatures of which we are born lay languid in the shallow, sun-pierced water, we still seek the primal things when we are tired, steeping ourselves within their lulling security, like those early half-mammals which had not yet ventured upon the oozy land. The monotony of the waves gave repose, and I had no other occupation than witnessing a myriad ocean moods. There is a ceaseless change in the waters. Colours and shades pass over them like the insubstantial expressions of a well-known face, and these are at once communicated to us by half-recognised senses. When the sea is restless, remembering old ships that have gone over her chasms, there comes up silently in our hearts the longing for a vanished horizon. But when she forgets, we forget also. Though we know her a lifetime, she must always hold an alien air, as if something too vast to have shape were lurking in the universe to which she is a door. The morning ocean, glimmering with a reflected mist of blue-white cloud and expanding diamond foam, has the eyes of one who ponders on strange things, and her intricately woven webs, through which dart a myriad-coloured fishes, hold the air of some great, idle thing which will arise presently from the hoary immemorial chasms, and stride upon the land. I was content for many days, and glad that I had chosen the lonely house which sat like a small beast upon those rounded cliffs of sand. Among the pleasantly aimless amusements fostered by such a life, I took to following the edge of the tide, where the waves left a damp irregular outline rimmed with evanescent foam for long distances, and sometimes I found curious bits of shell in the chance litter of the sea. There was an astonishing lot of debris on that inward-curving coast which my bare little house overlooked, and I judged that currents whose courses diverge from the village beach must reach that spot. At any rate, my pockets, when I had any, generally held vast stores of trash, most of which I threw away an hour or two after picking it up, wondering why I'd kept it. Once, however, I found a small bone whose nature I could not identify, save that it was certainly nothing out of a fish, and I kept this, along with a large metal bead whose minutely carven design was rather unusual. 
This latter depicted a fishy thing against a patterned background of seaweed, instead of the usual floral or geometrical designs, and was still clearly traceable, though worn with years of tossing in the surf. Since I had never seen anything like it, I judged that it represented some fashion now forgotten of a previous year at Helston, where similar fads were common. I had been there perhaps a week, when the weather began a gradual change. Each stage of this progressive darkening was followed by another subtly intensified, so that in the end the entire atmosphere surrounding me had shifted from day to evening. This was more obvious to me in a series of mental impressions than in what I actually witnessed, for the small house was lonely under the grey skies, and there was sometimes a beating wind that came out of the ocean bearing moisture. The sun was displaced by long intervals of cloudiness, layers of grey mist beyond whose unknown depth the sun lay cut off. Though it might glare with the old intensity above that enormous veil, it could not penetrate. The beach was a prisoner in a hueless vault for hours at a time, as if something of the night were welling into other hours. Although the wind was invigorating, and the ocean whipped into little churning spirals of activity by the vagrant flapping, I found the water growing chill, so that I could not stay in it as long as I had done previously, and thus I fell into the habit of long walks which, when I was unable to swim, provided the exercise that I was so careful to obtain. These walks covered a greater range of sea-edge than my previous wanderings, and since the beach extended in a stretch of miles beyond the tawdry village, I often found myself wholly isolated upon an endless area of sand as evening drew close. When this occurred, I would stride hastily along the whispering sea-border, following the outline so that I should not wander inland and lose my way. And, sometimes, when these walks were late, as they grew increasingly to be, I would come upon the crouching house that looked like a harbinger of the village. Insecure upon the wind-gnawed cliffs, a dark blot upon the morbid hues of the ocean sunset, it was more lonely than by the full light of either orb, and seemed to my imagination like a mute, questioning face turned toward me expectant of some action. That the place was isolated, I have said, and this at first pleased me. But in that brief evening hour, when the sun left a gore-splattered decline, and darkness lumbered on like an expanding, shapeless blot, there was an alien presence about the place—a spirit, a mood, an impression that came from the surging wind, the gigantic sky, and that sea which drooled blackening waves upon a beach grown abruptly strange. At these times I felt an uneasiness which had no very definite cause— although my solitary nature had made me long accustomed to the ancient silence and the ancient voice of nature. These misgivings, to which I could have put no sure name, did not affect me long. Yet I think now that all the while a gradual consciousness of the ocean's immense loneliness crept upon me, a loneliness that was made subtly horrible by intimations which were never more than such, of some animation or sentience preventing me from being wholly alone— the noisy, yellow streets of the town, with their curiously unreal activity, were very far away, and when I went there for my evening meal, mistrusting a diet entirely of my own ambiguous cooking, I took increasing and quite unreasonable care that I should return to the cottage before the late darkness, although I was often abroad until ten or so. You will say that such action is unreasonable, that if I had feared the darkness in some childish way, I would have entirely avoided it. You will ask me why I did not leave the place, since its loneliness was depressing me. To all this, I have no reply, save that whatever unrest I felt, whatever remote disturbance there was to me in brief aspects of the darkening sun, or in the eager salt brittle wind, or in the robe of the dark sea that lay crumpled like an enormous garment so close to me, was something which had an origin half in my own heart, which showed itself only at fleeting moments, and which had no very long effect upon me. In the recurrent days of diamond light, with sportive waves flinging blue peaks at the basking shore, the memory of dark mood seemed rather incredible, yet only an hour or two afterward I might again experience those moods, and descend to a dim region of despair. 
Perhaps these inward emotions were only a reflection of the sea's own mood, for although half of what we see is coloured by the interpretation placed upon it by our minds, many of our feelings are shaped quite distinctly by external, physical things. The sea can bind us to her many moods, whispering to us by the subtle token of a shadow, or a gleam upon the waves, and hinting in these ways of her mournfulness or rejoicing. Always she is remembering old things, and these memories, though we may not grasp them, are imparted to us, so that we share her gaiety or remorse. Since I was doing no work, seeing no person that I knew, I was perhaps susceptible to shades of her cryptic meaning which would have been overlooked by another. The ocean ruled my life during the whole of that late summer, demanding it as recompense for the healing she had brought me. There were drownings at the beach that year, and while I heard of these only casually, such is our indifference to a death which does not concern us, and to which we are not witness, I knew that their details were unsavoury. The people who died, some of them swimmers of a skill beyond the average, were sometimes not found until many days had elapsed, and the hideous vengeance of the deep had scourged their rotten bodies. It was as if the sea had dragged them into a chasm lair, and had mulled them about in the darkness until, satisfied that they were no longer of any use, she had floated them ashore in a ghastly state. No one seemed to know what had caused these deaths. Their frequency excited alarm among the timid, since the undertow at Elston was not strong, and since there were known to be no sharks at hand. Whether the bodies showed marks of any attacks I did not learn, but the dread of a death which moves among the waves, and comes on lone people from a lightless, motionless place, is a dread which men know, and do not like. They must quickly find a reason for such a death, even if there are no sharks, since sharks formed only a suspected cause, and one never to my knowledge confirmed. The swimmers who continued during the rest of the season were on guard against treacherous tides, rather than against any possible sea-animal. Autumn, indeed, was not a great distance off, and some people used this as an excuse for leaving the sea, where men were snared by death, and going to the security of inland fields, where one cannot even hear the ocean. So August ended, and I had been at the beach many days. There had been a threat of a storm since the fourth of the new month, and on the sixth, when I set out for a walk in the damp wind, there was a mass of formless cloud, colourless and oppressive, above the ruffled, leaden sea. The motion of the wind, directed toward no especial goal but stirring uneasily, provided a sensation of coming animation, a hint of life in the elements which might be the long-expected storm. I had eaten my luncheon at Elston, and though the heaven seemed the closing lid of a great casket, I ventured far down the beach and away from both the town and my no-longer-to-be-seen house. As the universal grey became spotted with a carrion purple, curiously brilliant despite its sombre hue, I found that I was several miles from any possible shelter. This, however, did not seem very important, for despite the dark skies with their added glow of unknown presage, I was in a curious mood of detachment paralleling that glow, a mood which flashed through a body grown suddenly alert and sensitive to the outline of shapes and meanings that were previously dim. Obscurely, a memory came to me, suggested by the likeness of the scene to one I had imagined when a story was read to me in childhood. That tale, of which I had not thought for many years, concerned a woman who was loved by the dark-bearded king of an underwater realm of blurred cliffs where fish-things lived, and who was taken from the golden-haired youth of her troth by a dark being crowned with a priest-like mitre and having the features of a withered ape. What had remained in the corner of my fancy was the image of cliffs beneath the water, against the hueless, dusky no-sky of such a realm. And this, though I had forgotten most of the story, was recalled quite unexpectedly by the same pattern of cliff and sky, which I then beheld. The sight was similar to what I had imagined in a year now lost save for random, incomplete impressions. Suggestions of this story may have lingered behind certain irritating unfinished memories, and in certain values hinted to my senses by scenes whose actual worth was bafflingly small. Frequently, in flashes of momentary perception, the conditions, 
more than the object being significant, we feel that certain isolated scenes and arrangements, a feathery landscape, a woman's dress along the curve of a road by afternoon, or the solidity of a century-defying tree against the pale morning sky, hold something precious, some golden virtue that we must grasp. And yet, when such a scene or arrangement is viewed later or from another point, we find that it has lost its value and meaning for us. Perhaps this is because the thing we see does not hold that elusive quality, but only suggests to the mind some very different thing which remains unremembered. The baffled mind, not wholly sensing the cause of its flashing appreciation, seizes on the object exciting it, and is surprised when there is nothing of worth therein. Thus it was, when I beheld the purpling clouds. They held the stateliness and mystery of old monastery towers at twilight, but their aspect was also that of the cliffs in the old fairy tale. Suddenly reminded of this lost image, I half expected to see, in the fine-spun dirty foam and among the waves which were now as if they had been poured of flawed black glass, the horrid figure of that ape-faced creature, wearing a mitre old with verdigris, advancing from its kingdom in some lost gulf to which those waves were sky. I did not see any such creature from the realm of imagining, but as the chill wind veered, slitting the heavens like a rustling knife, there lay in the gloom of merging cloud and water only a grey object, like a piece of driftwood, tossing obscurely on the foam. This was a considerable distance out, and since it vanished shortly, may not have been wood, but a porpoise coming to the troubled surface. I soon found that I had stayed too long contemplating the rising storm, and linking my early fancies with its grandeur, for an icy rain began spotting down, bringing a more uniform gloom upon a scene already too dark for the hour. Hurrying along the grey sand, I felt the impact of cold drops upon my back, and before many moments my clothing was soaked throughout. At first I had run, put to flight by the colourless drops whose pattern hung in long linking strands from an unseen sky. But after I saw that refuge was too far to reach in anything like a dry state, I slackened my pace, and returned home as if I had walked under clear skies. There was not much reason to hurry, although I did not idle as upon previous occasions. The constraining wet garments were cold upon me, and with the gathering darkness and the wind that rose endlessly from the ocean, I could not repress a shiver. Yet there was, beside the discomfort of the precipitous rain, an exhilaration latent in the purplish raveled masses of cloud, and the stimulated reactions of my body. In a mood half of exultant pleasure from resisting the rain, which streamed from me now and filled my shoes and pockets, and half of strange appreciation of those morbid, dominant skies which hovered with dark wings above the shifting, eternal sea, I tramped along the great corridor of Elston Beach. More rapidly than I had expected, the crouching house showed in the oblique, flapping rain, and all the weeds of the sand-cliff writhed in accompaniment to the frantic wind, as if they would uproot themselves to join the far-travelling element. Sea and sky had altered not at all, and the scene was that which had accompanied me, save that there was now painted upon it the hunching roof that seemed to bend from the assailing rain. I hurried up the insecure steps, and let myself into a dry room, where, unconsciously surprised that I was free of the nagging wind, I stood for a moment, with water rilling from every inch of me. There are two windows in the front of that house, one on each side, and these face nearly straight upon the ocean, which I now saw, half obscured by the combined veils of the rain and of the imminent night. From these windows I looked as I dressed myself, in a motley array of dry garments seized from convenient hangers, and from a chair too laden to sit upon. I was prisoned on all sides by an unnaturally increased dusk which had filtered down at some undefined hour, under cover of the storm. How long I had been on the reaches of wet grey sand, or what the real time was, I could not tell, though a moment's search produced my watch, fortunately left behind, and thus avoiding the uniform wetness of my clothing. I half guessed the hour from the dimly seen hands, which were only slightly less indecipherable than the surrounding figures. In another moment, 
my sight penetrated the gloom, greater in the house than beyond the bleared window, and saw that it was six forty-five. There had been no one upon the beach as I came in, and naturally I expected to see no further swimmers that night. Yet when I looked again from the window, there appeared surely to be figures blotting the grime of the wet evening. I counted three moving about in some incomprehensible manner, and close to the house another, which may not have been a person, but a wave-ejected log, for the surf was now pounding fiercely. I was startled to no little degree, and wondered for what purpose those hardy persons stayed out in such a storm. And then I thought that perhaps like myself, they had been caught unintentionally in the rain, and had surrendered to the watery gusts. In another moment, prompted by a certain civilized hospitality which overcame my love of solitude, I stepped to the door and emerged momentarily, at the cost of another wetting, for the rain promptly descended upon me in exultant fury, on the small porch, gesticulating toward the people. But whether they did not see me, or did not understand, they made no returning signal. Dim in the evening, they stood as if half surprised, or as if they awaited some other action from me. There was in their attitude something of that cryptic blankness, signifying anything or nothing, which the house wore about itself as seen in the morbid sunset. Abruptly, there came to me a feeling that a sinister quality lurked about those unmoving figures who chose to stay in the rainy night upon a beach deserted by all people, and I closed the door with a surge of annoyance which sought all too vainly to disguise a deeper emotion of fear, a consuming fright that welled up from the shadows of my consciousness. A moment later, when I had stepped to the window, there seemed to be nothing outside but the portentous night, vaguely puzzled and even more vaguely frightened, like one who has seen no alarming thing, but is apprehensive of what may be found in the dark street he is soon compelled to cross. I decided that I had very possibly seen no one, and that the murky air had deceived me. Two. The awe of isolation about the place increased that night, though just out of sight on the northward beach, a hundred houses rose in the rainy darkness, their light bleared and yellow above streets of polished glass, like goblin eyes reflected in an oily forest pool. Yet, because I could not see them, or even reach them in bad weather, since I had no car nor any way to leave the crouching house except by walking in the figure-haunted darkness, I realized quite suddenly that I was, to all intents, alone with the dreary sea that rose and subsided unseen, unkenned, in the mist, and the voice of the sea had become a hoarse groan, like that of something wounded which shifts about before trying to rise. Fighting away the prevalent gloom with a soiled lamp, for the darkness crept in at my windows and sat peering obscurely at me from the corners like a patient animal, I prepared my food since I had no intention of going to the village. The hour seemed incredibly advanced, though it was not yet nine o'clock when I went to bed. Darkness had come early and furtively, and throughout the remainder of my stay lingered evasively over each scene and action which I beheld. Something had settled out of the night, something forever undefined, but stirring a latent sense within me, so that I was like a beast expecting the momentary rustle of an enemy. There were hours of wind, and sheets of the downpour flapped endlessly on the meagre walls, barring it from me. Lulls came, in which I heard the mumbling sea, and I could guess that large, formless waves jostled one another in the pallid whine of the winds, and flung on the beach a spray bitter with salt. Yet in the very monotony of the restless elements I found a lethargic note, a sound that beguiled me, after a time, into slumber grey and colourless as the night. The sea continued its mad monologue, and the wind her nagging, but these were shut out by the walls of unconsciousness, and for a time the night ocean was banished from a sleeping mind. Morning brought an enfeebled sun, a sun like that which men will see when the earth is old, if there are any men left, a sun more weary than the shrouded, moribund sky. Faint echo of its old image, Phoebus strove to pierce the ragged, ambiguous clouds as I awoke, 
at moments sending a wash of pale gold rippling across the northwestern interior of my house, at others waning till it was only a luminous ball, like some incredible plaything forgotten on the celestial lawn. After a while, the falling rain, which must have continued throughout the previous night, succeeded in washing away those vestiges of purple cloud, which had been like the ocean cliffs in an old fairy tale. Cheated alike of the setting and rising sun, that day merged with the day before, as if the intervening storm had not ushered a long darkness into the world, but had swollen and subsided into one long afternoon. Gaining heart, the furtive sun exerted all his force in dispelling the old mist, streaked now like a dirty window, and cast it from his realm. The shallow blue day advanced as those grimy wisps retreated, and the loneliness which had encircled me welled back into a watchful place of retreat, whence it went no farther, but crouched and waited. The ancient brightness was now once more upon the sun, and the old glitter on the waves, whose playful blue shapes had flocked upon that coast ere man was born, and would rejoice unseen when he was forgotten in the sepulchre of time. Influenced by these thin assurances, like one who believes the smile of friendship on an enemy's features, I opened my door, and as it swung outward, a black spot upon the inward burst of light, I saw the beach washed clean of any track, as if no foot before mine had disturbed the smooth sand. With the quick lift of spirit that follows a period of uneasy depression, I felt, in a purely yielding fashion and without volition, that my own memory was washed clean of all the mistrust and suspicion and disease-like fear of a lifetime, just as the filth of the water's edge succumbs to a particularly high tide, and is carried out of sight. There was a scent of soaked, brackish grass, like the mouldy pages of a book, commingled with a sweet odour born of the hot sunlight upon inland meadows, and these were borne into me like an exhilarating drink, seeping and tingling through my veins, as if they would convey to me something of their own impalpable nature, and float me dizzily in the aimless breeze. And conspiring with these things, the sun continued to shower upon me, like the rain of yesterday, an incessant array of bright spears, as if it also wished to hide that suspected background presence which moved beyond my sight, and was betrayed only by a careless rustle on the borders of my consciousness or by the aspect of blank figures staring out of an ocean void. That sun, a fierce ball solitary in the whirlpool of infinity, was like a horde of golden moths against my upturned face, a bubbling white grail of fire, divine and incomprehensible. It withheld from me a thousand promised mirages, where it granted one. For the sun did actually seem to indicate realms, secure and fanciful, where if I but knew the path, I might wander in this curious exaltation. Such things come of our own natures, for life has never yielded for one moment her secrets, and it is only in our interpretation of their hinted images that we may find ecstasy or dullness, according to a deliberately induced mood. Yet ever and again we must succumb to her deceptions, believing for the moment that we may this time find the withheld joy." and in this way the fresh sweetness of the wind, on a morning following the haunted darkness, whose evil intimations had given me a greater uneasiness than any menace to my body, whispered to me of ancient mysteries only half linked with earth, and of pleasures that were the sharper, because I felt that I might experience only a part of them. The sun and wind, and that scent that arose upon them, told me of festivals of gods, whose senses are a million-fold more poignant than man's, and whose joys are a million-fold more subtle and prolonged. These things, they hinted, could be mine if I gave myself wholly into their bright, deceptive power, and the sun, a crouching god with naked celestial flesh, an unknown, too mighty furnace upon which I might not look, seemed almost sacred in the glow of my newly sharpened emotions. The ethereal, thunderous light it gave was something before which all things must worship astonished. The slinking leopard in his green-chasmed forest must have paused briefly to consider its leaf-scattered rays, 
and all things nurtured by it must have cherished its bright message on such a day. For when it is absent in the far reaches of eternity, earth will be lost and black against an illimitable void. That morning, in which I shared the fire of life, and whose brief moment of pleasure is secure against the ravenous years, was astir with the beckoning of strange things whose elusive names can never be written. As I made my way toward the village, wondering how it might look after a long-needed scrubbing by the industrious rain, I saw, tangled in a glimmer of sunlit moisture that was poured over it like a yellow vintage, a small object like a hand, some twenty feet ahead of me, and touched by the repetitious foam. The shock and disgust born in my startled mind when I saw that it was indeed a piece of rotten flesh, overcame my new contentment, and engendered a shocked suspicion that it might actually be a hand. Certainly, no fish or part of one could assume that look, and I thought I saw mushy fingers wed in decay. I turned the thing over with my foot, not wishing to touch so foul an object, and it adhered stickily to the leather shoe, as if clutching with the grasp of corruption. The thing, whose shape was nearly lost, held too much resemblance to what I feared it might be, and I pushed it into the willing grasp of a seething wave, which took it from sight with an alacrity not often shown by those raveled edges of the sea. Perhaps I should have reported my find, yet its nature was too ambiguous to make action natural. Since it had been partly eaten by some ocean-dwelling monstrousness, I did not think it identifiable enough to form evidence of an unknown but possible tragedy. The numerous drownings, of course, came into my mind, as well as other things lacking in wholesomeness, some of which remained only as possibilities. Whatever the storm-dislodged fragment may have been, and whether it were fish or some animal akin to man, I have never spoken of it until now. After all, there was no proof that it had not merely been distorted by rottenness into that shape. I approached the town, sickened by the presence of such an object amidst the apparent beauty of the clean beach, though it was horribly typical of the indifference of death in a nature which mingles rottenness with beauty, and perhaps loves the former more. In Elston I heard of no recent drowning or other mishap of the sea, and found no reference to such in the columns of the local paper, the only one I read during my stay. It is difficult to describe the mental state in which succeeding days found me, always susceptible to morbid emotions whose dark anguish might be induced by things outside myself, or might spring from the abysses of my own spirit, I was ridden by a feeling which was not a fear or despair, or anything akin to these, but was rather a perception of the brief hideousness and underlying filth of life, a feeling partly a reflection of my internal nature, and partly a result of broodings induced by that gnawed rotten object, which may have been a hand. In those days my mind was a place of shadowed cliffs and dark-moving figures, like the ancient unsuspected realm which the fairy tale recalled to me. I felt, in brief agonies of disillusionment, the gigantic blackness of this overwhelming universe, in which my days and the days of my race were as nothing to the shattered stars, a universe in which each action is vain, and even the emotion of grief a wasted thing. The hours I had previously spent in something of regained health, contentment, and physical well-being were given now, as if those days of the previous week were something definitely ended, to an indolence like that of a man who no longer cares to live. I was engulfed by a piteous lethargic fear of some ineluctable doom which would be, I felt, the completed hate of the peering stars and of the black enormous waves that hoped to clasp my bones within them, the vengeance of all the indifferent, horrendous majesty of the night ocean. Something of the darkness and restlessness of the sea had penetrated my heart so that I lived in an unreasoning, unperceiving torment, a torment none the less acute because of the subtlety of its origin, and the strange, unmotivated quality of its vampiric existence. Before my eyes lay the phantasmagoria of the purpling clouds, the strange silver bauble, the recurrent stagnant foam, 
the loneliness of that bleak-eyed house, and the mockery of the puppet town. I no longer went to the village, for it seemed only a travesty of life, like my own soul. It stood upon a dark, enveloping sea, a sea grown slowly hateful to me, and among these images, corrupt and festering, dwelt that of an object whose human contours left ever smaller the doubt of what it once had been. These scribbled words can never tell of the hideous loneliness, something I did not even wish assuaged, so deeply was it embedded in my heart, which had insinuated itself within me, mumbling of terrible and unknown things, stealthily circling nearer. It was not a madness, rather it was a too clear and naked perception of the darkness beyond this frail existence, lit by a momentary sun no more secure than ourselves, a realization of futility that few can experience and ever again touch the life about them, a knowledge that, turn as I might, battle as I might, with all the remaining power of my spirit, I could neither win an inch of ground from the inimical universe, nor hold for even a moment the life entrusted to me. Fearing death as I did life, burdened with a nameless dread, yet unwilling to leave the scenes evoking it, I awaited whatever consummating horror was shifting itself in the immense region beyond the walls of consciousness. Thus autumn found me, and what I had gained from the sea was lost back into it. Autumn on the beaches, a drear time betokened by no scarlet leaf nor any other accustomed sign. A frightening sea which changes not, though man changes. There was only a chilling of the waters, in which I no longer cared to enter, a further darkening of the pall-like sky, as if eternities of snow were waiting to descend upon the ghastly waves. Once that descent began, it would never cease, but would continue beneath the white and the yellow and the crimson sun, and beneath that ultimate small ruby which shall yield only to the futilities of night. The once friendly waters babbled meaningfully at me, and eyed me with a strange regard. Yet whether the darkness of the scene were a reflection of my own broodings, or whether the gloom within me were caused by what lay without, I could not have told. Upon the beach and me alike had fallen a shadow, like that of a bird which flies silently overhead, a bird whose watching eyes we do not suspect, till the image on the ground repeats the image in the sky and we look suddenly upward to find that something has been circling above us, hitherto unseen. The day was in late September, and the town had closed the resorts where mad frivolity ruled empty, fear-haunted lives, and where rattled puppets performed their summer antics. The puppets were cast aside, smeared with the painted smiles and frowns they had last assumed, and there were not a hundred people left in the town. Again, the gaudy, stucco-fronted buildings lining the shore were permitted to crumble undisturbed in the wind. As the month advanced to the day of which I speak, there grew in me the light of a grey, infernal dawn, wherein I felt some dark thaumaturgy would be completed. Since I feared such a thaumaturgy less than a continuance of my horrible suspicions, less than the too elusive hints of something monstrous lurking behind the great stage— it was with more speculation than actual fear that I waited unendingly for the day of horror, which seemed to be nearing. The day, I repeat, was late in September, though whether the twenty-second or twenty-third I am uncertain. Such details have fled before the recollection of those uncompleted happenings, episodes with which no orderly existence should be plagued because of the damnable suggestions, and only suggestions, they contain. I knew the time with an intuitive distress of spirit, a recognition too deep for me to explain. Throughout those daylight hours, I was expectant of the night, impatient, perhaps, so that the sunlight passed like a half-glimpsed reflection in rippled water, a day of whose events I recall nothing. It was long since that portentous storm had cast a shadow over the beach, and I had determined, after hesitations caused by nothing tangible, to leave Elston, since the year was chilling, and there was no return to my earlier contentment. When a telegram came for me, 
Lying two days in the Western Union office before I was located, so little was my name known, saying that my design had been accepted, winning above all others in the contest, I set a date for leaving. This news, which earlier in the year would have affected me strongly, I now received with a curious apathy. It seemed as unrelated to the unreality about me, as little pertinent to me, as if it were directed to another person whom I did not know, and whose message had come to me through some accident. Nonetheless, it was that which forced me to complete my plans, and leave the cottage by the shore. There were only four nights of my stay remaining, when there occurred the last of those events, whose meaning lies more in the darkly sinister impression surrounding them, than in anything obviously threatening. Night had settled over Elston and the coast, and a pile of soiled dishes attested both to my recent meal and to my lack of industry. Darkness came as I sat with a cigarette before the seaward window, and it was a liquid which gradually filled the sky, washing in a floating moon monstrously elevated. The flat sea bordering upon the gleaming sand, the utter absence of tree or figure or life of any sort, and the regard of that high moon made the vastness of my surroundings abruptly clear. There were only a few stars pricking through, as if to accentuate by their smallness the majesty of the lunar orb and of the restless, shifting tide. I had stayed indoors, fearing somehow to go out before the sea on such a night of shapeless portent, but I heard it mumbling secrets of an incredible lore. Born to me on a wind out of nowhere was the breath of some strange and palpitant life, the embodiment of all I had felt, and of all I had suspected, stirring now in the chasms of the sky, or beneath the mute waves. In what place this mystery turned from an ancient horrible slumber I could not tell, but like one who stands by a figure lost in sleep, knowing that it will awake in a moment, I crouched by the windows, holding a nearly burnt-out cigarette, and faced the rising moon. Gradually there passed into that never-stirring landscape a brilliance intensified by the overhead glimmerings, and I seemed more and more under some compulsion to watch whatever might follow. The shadows were draining from the beach, and I felt that with them were all which might have been a harbour for my thoughts when the hinted thing should come. Where any of them did remain they were ebon and blank, still lumps of darkness sprawling beneath the cruel brilliant rays. The endless tableau of the lunar orb, dead now, whatever her past was, and cold as the unhuman sepulchre she bears amid the ruin of dusty centuries older than man, and the sea, astir perhaps with some unkenned life, some forbidden sentience, confronted me with a horrible vividness. I arose, and shut the window, partly because of an inward prompting, but mostly, I think, as an excuse for transferring momentarily the stream of thought. No sound came to me now, as I stood before the closed panes. Minutes or eternities were alike. I was waiting, like my own fearing heart, and the motionless scene beyond, for the token of some ineffable life. I had set the lamp upon a box in the western corner of the room, but the moon was brighter, and her bluish rays invaded places where the lamplight was faint. The ancient glow of the round silent orb lay upon the beach as it had lain for eons, and I waited in a torment of expectancy, made doubly acute by the delay in fulfilment, and the uncertainty of what strange completion— was to come. Outside the crouching hut a white illumination suggested vague spectral forms, whose unreal, phantasmal motion seemed to taunt my blindness, just as unheard voices mocked my eager listening. For countless moments I was still, as if time and the tolling of her great bell were hushed into nothingness. And yet there was nothing which I might fear— the moon-chiselled shadows were unnatural in no contour, and veiled nothing from my eyes. The night was silent. I knew that, despite my closed window, and all the stars were fixed mournfully in a listening heaven of dark grandeur. No motion from me then, or word now, could reveal my plight, or tell of the fear-racked brain imprisoned in flesh which dared not break the silence, for all the torture it brought. As if expectant of death, 
and assured that nothing could serve to banish the sole peril I confronted, I crouched with a forgotten cigarette in my hand. A silent world gleamed beyond the cheap, dirty windows, and in one corner of the room a pair of dirty oars, placed there before my arrival, shared the vigil of my spirit. The lamp burned endlessly, yielding a sick light hued like a corpse's flesh. Glancing at it now and again, for the desperate distraction it gave, I saw that many bubbles unaccountably rose and vanished in the kerosene-filled base. Curiously enough, there was no heat from the wick, and suddenly I became aware that the night as a whole was neither warm nor cold, but strangely neutral, as if all physical forces were suspended, and all the laws of a calm existence disrupted. Then, with an unheard splash which sent from the silver water to the shore a line of ripples echoed in fear by my heart, a swimming thing emerged beyond the breakers. The figure may have been that of a dog, a human being, or something more strange. It could not have known that I watched. Perhaps it did not care. But like a distorted fish, it swam across the mirrored stars and dived beneath the surface. After a moment it came up again. And this time, since it was closer, I saw that it was carrying something across its shoulder. I knew, then, that it could be no animal, and that it was a man, or something like a man, which came toward the land from a dark ocean. But it swam with a horrible ease. As I watched, dread-filled and passive, with the fixed stare of one who awaits death in another, yet knows he cannot avert it, the swimmer approached the shore, though too far down the southward beach for me to discern its outlines or features. Obscurely loping, with sparks of moonlit foam scattered by its quick gait, it emerged and was lost among the inland dunes. Now I was possessed by a sudden recurrence of fear, which had died away in the previous moments. There was a tingling coldness all over me, though the room, whose window I dared not open now, was stuffy. I thought it would be very horrible if something were to enter a window which was not closed. Now that I could no longer see the figure, I felt that it lingered somewhere in the close shadows, or peered hideously at me from whatever window I did not watch. And so I turned my gaze, eagerly and frantically, to each successive pane dreading that I might indeed behold an intrusive regarding face, yet unable to keep myself from the terrifying inspection. But though I watched for hours, there was no longer anything upon the beach. So the night passed, and with it began the ebbing of that strangeness, a strangeness which had surged up like an evil brew within a pot, had mounted to the very rim in a breathless moment, had paused uncertainly there, and had subsided, taking with it whatever unknown message it had borne. Like the stars that promise the revelation of terrible and glorious memories, goad us into worship by this deception, and then impart nothing. I had come frighteningly near to the capture of an old secret which ventured close to man's haunts, and lurked cautiously just beyond the edge of the known. Yet in the end I had nothing— I was given only a glimpse of the furtive thing, a glimpse made obscure by the veils of ignorance. I cannot even conceive what might have shown itself had I been too close to that swimmer who went shoreward instead of into the ocean. I do not know what might have come if the brew had passed the rim of the pot and poured outward in a swift cascade of revelation. The night ocean withheld whatever it had nurtured. I shall know nothing more— even yet, I do not know why the ocean holds such a fascination for me. But then, perhaps none of us can solve those things. They exist in defiance of all explanation. There are men, and wise men, who do not like the sea and its lapping surf on yellow shores, and they think how strange you love the mystery of the ancient and unending deep. Yet for me— there is a haunting and inscrutable glamour in all the ocean's moods. It is in the melancholy silver foam beneath the moon's waxen corpse. It hovers over the silent and eternal waves that beat on naked shores. It is there when all is lifeless, safer 
unknown shapes that glide through sombre depths. And when I behold the awesome billows surging in endless strength, there comes upon me an ecstasy akin to fear, so that I must abase myself before this mightiness, that I may not hate the clotted waters and their overwhelming beauty. Vast and lonely is the ocean, and even as all things came from it, so shall they return thereto. In the shrouded depths of time none shall reign upon the earth, nor shall any motion be, save in the eternal waters. And these shall beat on dark shores and thunderous foam, though none shall remain in that dying world to watch the cold light of the enfeebled moon playing on the swirling tides and coarse-grained sand. On the deep's margin shall rest only a stagnant foam, gathering about the shells and bones of perished shapes that dwelt within the waters. Silent, flabby things will toss and roll along empty shores, their sluggish life extinct. Then all shall be dark, for at last even the white moon on the distant waves shall wink out. Nothing shall be left, neither above nor below the sombre waters. And until that last millennium, as after it, the sea will thunder and toss throughout the dismal night.